Good to see everybody on this beautiful, beautiful day today. <laughs> I saw some churches canceled today. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I missed something there, didn't I? Okay, we are going to... Uh, Look at the book of Nahum today. Huh? <laughs> Listen to me. Okay, we're in this series on the minor prophets. Nahum is obviously one of the minor prophets. I'm pretty confident that very, very, very few of us know what's in this book. What's it about? Anybody know before you get there? Okay, listen, feel the joy in your soul this morning we are going to actually learn something we don't know. Think about this. These three chapters take up precious space in God's word. God has this book in his gospel for a reason. Um, and so let's find out what that reason is today. Nahum, I don't have a blue Bible. Does anybody have a blue Bible? Can anyone tell me what page it is? Nahum chapter one. What? Perfect, 761. We haven't stood, I don't think, in a couple of weeks for the reading, so let's stand right now. We'll start at Nahum chapter one. We'll get our toes wet in this. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. Okay. If you were here last week, uh, Nineveh is the city that uh, Jonah went and preached to. That's what we looked at last week. This is the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes. He vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the seas and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan, Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence the world, and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh, he will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. This is God's word for now. You can be seated. Come on, who loves this text? I haven't heard any amens yet. Well, according to Richard Dawkins, the professor of Oxford, the most renowned atheist of our day, uh, who preaches atheism, uh, this is what he had to say. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, genocidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, Capriciously malviolent bully. Yours truly, Richard Dawkins. I couldn't disagree more with that statement. In fact, I actually think it's pretty anti Semitic because if you can say those things about the Jewish God, you're one step closer to saying that about the Jewish people, but that's a whole other conversation. However, I get it. In fact, when, if, if you and I would just read the book of Nahum at face value, 
and not do the hard work of really listening to the text and understanding the text in light of the whole of Scripture, uh, understanding the, the, the text because it is story in light of uh, its historical background, I think it would be very easy for us also to agree with Richard Dawkins' stereotypical understanding of the Old Testament God. So, if we're going to study this book, we, we need to just ask the basic questions that you ask when you study any part of Scripture. Who's writing this? We know it's Nahum. When is Nahum writing this? And most importantly, what's the purpose uh, for him writing this book? Now, the minor prophets that we've studied so far, we've looked at Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah, uh, they were all written during a specific time, and that time was important. It was a time when God's people uh, were split into two nations, uh, a northern kingdom, Israel, a southern kingdom, Judah, and even though each of these nations, you can hardly really call them a nation, they're, they're hardly even a country, um, they're, they're very small, but at the time that these prophets are writing, they are experiencing a golden age. And uh, let me just show a map of, of what we showed this before. Um, you can see, well, this probably doesn't mean much to you because it's hard to read everything. I wish you could see Damascus. Uh, very rarely uh, does Israel even get close to Damascus, and now the orange has just swallowed Damascus up, which is typically the capital city of Syria. Judah has expanded, taken over Edom. Philistia uh, is a vassal state to them. Uh, they're experiencing a golden age. And I think there's a simple reason for this, at least historically. When the cat's away, the mice will play. And Judah and Israel are, are mice in a cat world, and the cats are sleeping so the mice can come out, have their fun in the sun, and Israel and Judah prosper. And we learned about the, the results of this prosperity particularly with Israel, it just caused everybody to be selfish. The prosperity caused them to be narcissistic. It caused them to indulge in sensuality. It caused them to uh, exploit people, to trample on the poor. It caused them to forsake God. And we see this also throughout history. When people prosper, it doesn't always lead to godliness. It usually leads to godlessness, which is why those prophets come in and speak and address this situation. But now the times are going to dramatically change. Very dramatically. Um, particularly with one of the cats. One of the cats is going to wake up, and this cat is Assyria. It's not only the biggest cat on the block, but it's also the biggest bully. That revival that was instigated by Jonah in a time before this uh, obviously was short-lived. I mean, it's pretty stunning to think that a place like that, uh, the whole city from the least to the greatest repented and turned to the Lord, but just one generation after that, uh, Assyria returns to being Mordor this evil empire. They rise up with the attempt to rule the world and they do what empires do. They develop the world's greatest war machine, not only the most sophisticated, chariots, archers. Uh, they also developed uh, the most sophisticated siege equipment of their day, which allowed for them to just uh, take over uh, formidable cities in a short amount of time. And they were cruel. Adolf Hitler, when he was rising to power, he once said this, he said, I want to raise a generation of young people who are devoid of a conscience, who are imperious, relentless, and cruel. And, and we know what Hitler did with one generation. He, he succeeded in that. Millions upon millions of, of people died as a result of that intent. 
Joseph Stalin was, was, was once asked, how, how are you going to rule over the masses that are under your charge? And he saw this chicken that was just walking there. He said, bring me that chicken. And he took the chicken in his hands and one by one defeathered it and put the chicken on the ground and it was just shaking there. And then he said, bring me some bread. Someone brought him some bread and he put the bread down and that chicken just kind of shakingly walked up and ate the bread out of his hand. That's empire. Empire and cruelty go hand in hand. Assyria might be the cruelest empire of all time. So after establishing themselves and taking out parts of the east, conquering Babylon, they head west and they're gonna feed on the mice. First it's gonna be Syria, then it's gonna be Phoenicia, then it's gonna be Israel. You can read about this in 2 Kings uh, chapter 15, 16, and 17. Um, it's all right there in our Bibles. Uh, originally, uh, the king of Israel says, here Assyria will give you just tons of silver, and that placates the cat for a little while. So uh, Israel's king has to tax his people like crazy, taking all this silver from them so he can pay the king of Assyria. That doesn't last long. Uh, then Assyria comes and bites off half of the mouse, takes out half of Israel. Why does he do this? Well, because Nineveh, which we learned last week, is already a great city. God calls it a great city. Uh, king of Assyria wants to make it into the greatest city of the world. He needs slaves, so he comes to Israel, bites off half of it, and exiles thousands upon thousands of people back to his capital city of Nineveh to build that thing up and make it the most spectacular city in the world. Not the first time that has happened in Israelite history. Pharaoh used Hebrew slaves to build Thebes in his great cities. Rome also built Rome up on the backs of Hebrew slaves as well. This only lasts so long, and then you get to 2 Kings chapter 17, and Assyria comes in and now eats the whole mouse. Israel's gone. Boom, done. Off the world stage. And you have to ask yourself, like, why did God allow this? And God not just once, but twice in 2 Kings, 1 2 Kings 17, um, also in 2 Kings 18, God explains why he allowed this. And it was for the simple fact, if you think about this, Israel didn't have one king who sought the Lord. Every one of them were wicked and bringing idol worship to the land. God says on every hill, there's an Asherah pole. You broke the covenant. You broke the marriage. You, you, you trampled it in the mud. In fact, in Verses 13 and 14 of 2 Kings 17, God says, and you didn't even listen to the prophets that I sent you. I sent prophets to warn you. We have to listen to the prophets. How many times does Jesus speak about the prophets? And how we need to listen to them. And probably the most depressing verse in 2 Kings 17 is when God says, and I removed my presence from you. Just sucked it away. Now that's Israel. What about Judah? Judah this whole time is playing politics with uh, Assyria, and uh, they too uh, literally throw large amounts of money. Money always placates the cat. In fact, the king of Judah, Ahaz, a wicked king, so wicked. Not only did he establish the worship of Baal and Asherah, but in the valley of Hinnom, right outside of Jerusalem, he offered two of his sons as sacrifices to appease the God of Baal. 
And he's trying to appease the king of Assyria and he literally strips the temple of all its gold, all its precious things, sends it all to the king of Assyria. Um, And then into this enters a new king, a king of Judah called Hezekiah. And there are two things about Hezekiah that I absolutely love. And you can read about this in 2 Kings 18, which I'm going to do actually right now because I want you to hear these things. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Now listen to this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed all the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses uh, had made up from the time Uh, The Israelites had been in the desert. Think about that. We just studied that. They still are worshiping that bronze snake. Um, They call it Nehushtan, uh, which actually means uh, snake. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Think about that. He held fast to the Lord. He did not stop following God. He did the commands the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. (laughs) What's the amen to that, you guys? I mean, now we finally have a king who wants to pursue God with his whole heart. And it's not just him as a person, but as a leader of a people, as a shepherd of the sheep. He calls for national revival. I love this about Hezekiah. The second thing I love about Hezekiah is the next verse, and Hezekiah rebelled against Assyria. So now the question is, what is Assyria gonna do? And what Assyria does is told three times in your Old Testament. It's the only story that's told three times, which means that this story is a very big deal. I'll go to the Second Chronicles portion, 32. After all that, Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. So here comes the cat, <laughs> knocking out towns, cities, fortified cities. You keep reading until only two cities in Judah remain. Their two strongest cities, Lachish and Jerusalem. Now what's amazing about this story, even though it's three times in your Old Testament, um, we also have the Assyrian king's account of this story as well, which is in the British Museum today, King Sennacherib's account because he kept a war diary of his exploits. And this is how he puts it in his diary. I took out 46 of Judah's walled cities. So now he comes to Lachish with just Lachish and Jerusalem still holding out and Sennacherib destroys Lachish. He records this Victory in graphic detail in his palace, which too, the remains of that are in the British Museum today. In fact, I have some PowerPoint of it right here. Now, when I, when I studied in Jerusalem, one of my professors, Gabi Barkai, was the chief archaeologist for the city of Lachish. And so I got a great download from him. Many of these captured soldiers when Lachish was destroyed, were flayed alive. Their skins would be nailed to the city wall. Eyes were gouged out, ears cut off, tongues cut out. Others had hands, feet, arms, and legs just axed off. 
And we know this because mass burials were found around Lachish with skeletons missing extremities. Women and children were not immune to this torture. Women and daughters were publicly raped in front of husbands and dads. Infants and children were burned before their parents. High-ranking officials were impaled, their form of crucifixion. If you survived this, a hook would go on your nose and lip, and you'd be chained with thousands and sent off into exile to a strange land. In his diary, Sennacherib says, I took 200,150 of Judah's best into exile. Lachish falls. Only Jerusalem remains. I want you to look at a map. Nah, I don't have it. I want you to consider the whole Middle Eastern world. And if we could say in, in the color of green, the green marks the Assyrian Empire, the whole map would be green. The whole map. Except for, thank you, dude. <laughs> Even Egypt. Except that dot, that little dot, Jerusalem. Now, not only is this a hopeless scenario, but Here's what happens. Now Sennacherib sends his general with 200,000 soldiers to Jerusalem. He also gives his general a letter to give to Sennacherib. The letter essentially says, and it's to be given to Hezekiah from Sennacherib, I'm gonna get you. Just imagine the terror of living in Jerusalem. Then you wake up one morning, you look out over the walls, and you see this army completely surrounding your city. And I want us to consider what's at stake here. It's not just the city of Jerusalem, but the whole story, the whole story of God right now could come to a complete end. The genealogy in Matthew 1 would have ended with Hezekiah. There would have been no Christ. And one of my favorite passages in the Bible is Isaiah 37. This is another place where this story is described. When Hezekiah gets this letter from Sennacherib, he runs to the temple with it. It literally says he went into the house. Only priests can go into a house, into the God's house. I think he went all the way into the Holy of Holies, and I think he just laid that letter down before God and said, God, what are you gonna do about this? And it says he prayed to God, calling him the Lord and creator of everything, the ruler of all. Help us. I don't know if some of you are there today. You're in a marriage that feels hopeless. There's aspects to your life that feel hopeless. Run to God. Take hold of him. Whatever your letter is of, of, of hopelessness, of despair, take it and just throw it at God's feet. It's what Hezekiah does. He is so desperate. And I love what God then tells Hezekiah. Essentially, God says to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, I know this looks entirely hopeless, but I got this. Trust me. And not only does God speak to Hezekiah, but God also has some words for Sennacherib. Because Sennacherib made a mockery of God. He slandered God's name. And he says to Sennacherib, Sennacherib, how dare you mock me? He says, you will not shoot one arrow here. You will not step one foot in my city, Jerusalem. And 
I, the Lord, will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and make you return the way you came. Come on, give me an amen to that. What's in your text? And the way this story ends, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And think about it, those living in Jerusalem woke up the next day and when they looked out over their city walls, all they saw were dead bodies. Now, even though Jerusalem was spared, I want us to think about all the wreckage. The towns, the cities that were destroyed, the loss of life, thousands who were, who were taken from the land as exiles. It's into this wreckage that Nahum writes this prophecy. In fact, verse one tells us that God gives him a vision just like God in Revelation gave John a vision uh, for John, it was the vision of what was gonna happen to Babylon, uh, which refers to Rome, but also uh, the Babylon of all Babylon's um, future. Um, here it's God giving Nahum a vision of what's gonna happen to Nineveh. And now let's just read this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes. He vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The cloud are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, it dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence and the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire on the, and the rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but he will be an overwhelming flood. He will make an end of Nineveh and he will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. I know a lot of Christians today who don't like this God. They don't like this aspect of God. They can't accept a God like this that says, I am an avenging God and I will take vengeance. I'll tell you the people who can't accept this aspect of God. They're people of privilege. They're people of Massive privilege. They're people who don't have a clue about the world's pain. They're people who probably live comfortable suburban lives whose biggest complaints about the world are we don't have free college education or plastic straws or we have a mean president. Those are first world problems, folks. If you can't accept the God of Nahum, a God who says, I am an avenging God who takes vengeance, it really shows how ethnocentric you really are, that you live in this little bubble, that you're clueless to the pain of the world, that you're clueless to people who live in real pain, who know deep, deep loss, who've been victims of gross crimes. Do you know right now that a large part of the world struggles with your idea of God? That God is just a God who loves and accepts everyone just the same. A large part of our world 
has difficulty accepting a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who forgives, a God who just accepts everyone. They come to this book and they read it and they say, yes, amen. This is gospel to their ears that God is actually going to vindicate, that God is gonna come and he's gonna make it right. That God promises to take vengeance on those people who abused me, who murdered my parents, who sold me into slavery, who repeatedly raped me, who took everything I own. Yes. Because that's who God's people are in this story. They're the little people. They're the oppressed people. They're, they're the worst victims of some of the worst crimes against humanity. So what might be awful to your ears, which causes us to just scoot around these texts, you have to understand it's gospel. This is gospel. That's why in chapter one, verse 15, you have the word gospel. The feet of him who brings gospel. Every year, at least twice, I go to Yad Vashem, a Holocaust memorial in, in Jerusalem. It's, it's stunning. It's painful to walk through that place. And I was thinking about this this week as I was studying the book of Nahum that the book of Nahum is in their Bible. <laughs> and I couldn't help but wonder, what does this book mean to them? When they read these pages, these words that God is gonna come, he's gonna avenge. He's gonna take vengeance. In fact, in verse one, already three times the word vengeance is used. In Hebrew, vengeance is the word nahum which actually sounds a lot like Nahum's name, but it's not. Nahum's name is actually, is actually Nahum, <laughs> but they sound very familiar. Uh, Nahum means comfort, so the title of this book is Comfort. Think about that. So when you put Nahum and Nahum together, uh, the book of Nahum, comfort uh, to the beaten up and to the devastated, it is comfort that God will take Nahum, vengeance. Chapters two and three describe how God will avenge Nineveh. Nahum gets this vision, uh, and then he prophesies it in some of the most beautiful language in the Hebrew Bible. It's just beautiful. Um, in fact, I think you can, even in the English, uh, pick up its beauty, but also uh, just the rawness of it, uh, look, at, look at Nahum chapter three. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitutions and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to Nahum to comfort you? This is not just to Nineveh, but it's also to Nineveh's Fuhrer, its king, 18 and 19. King of Assyria, your henchmen slumber. Your Gestapo lies down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt 
your endless cruelty. Essentially, everything that's described here that God is going to do to Nineveh is everything Nineveh did to the nations. It's just as Jesus said, the measure by which you judge others is the same measure by which you will be judged. Now tell me, who is that good news to? That's exactly what God is portrayed as in this book. He's portrayed as a judge, a judge who judges. In 1 verse 3, he says, I will not let the guilty go unpunished. Does anybody know where this is a quote from? We looked at it last week. It's right out of Exodus 34. It's when Moses said to God, God, you've shown me so much, but I still want to see your face. I want to see your face. Show me your face. God says, you can't see my face. It will kill you. Uh, But I will put you in a cleft of a rock, and I'll pass by your backside. And so God does that. He puts Moses in the cleft of a rock. He passes by uh, Moses, and as he passes by, he says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving uh, all the iniquity up to a thousand generations of those who love me and who who keep my commandments. It doesn't stop there. It ends with, but I will not let the guilty go unpunished. Now, this is the exact verse that Jonah prayed last week when he said, God, I knew the kind of God you were. And he goes on and he quotes back to God, Exodus 34. You're gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. I knew that you were going to relent from sending your wrath on Nineveh. That's why I ran. But it ends with, I will not let the guilty go unpunished. In fact, here, quoting that, Nahum also replaces, instead of saying abounding in a said, he says, God abounds with power. So not only is God a judge, but God has this abounding power to actually carry out his judgments. Now, we love to think of God as Father. We sang about it today. Or our friend, our rescuer, our lover, our healer. When's the last time we sang something? Oh, God, we worship you, our judge. God as judge is one of the main themes of the prophets. And it means something pretty incredible for all of us right now. It means something pretty incredible for the whole world right now. It means that life actually matters. That decisions we make matter. That how we live, how we treat people, it matters. That we can't just live however we want. That there is an eternal weight to everything we do. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. I think part of the reason why we wrestle with this idea of God as judge and and, and his judgment is because we see this strictly as punitive. But think about the most basic thing that a judge does. A good judge brings justice to the world. And justice is not just punitive, justice is also restorative. So when we understand God as judge, it's God as the one who's gonna restore everything. He's gonna make everything right, which includes God coming to avenge, God turning the tables, God punishing the oppressor, God lifting up the oppressed, God turning all the unfair of the world into fair, injustice into justice. Seems by the psalmist, because they're the little people of the world. They're always crying out, How long, God? How long do we have to wait for this? Look at Psalm 96, 10 to 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant. Let every, everything in them, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. God's judgment means that God is gonna come and he's gonna make everything right, which is why all creation is gonna sing and dance and clap their hands. Which means something pretty important for us. If God's gonna do this, we don't do it. It's not ours to avenge. said all over the Bible, but I'll take you to Romans 12 because Romans 12 is a book of the Bible we feel comfortable in, and it describes the community, um, the community of God that reflects Christ to the world, and I'll just read these verses from verse 17, uh, starting with verse 14, bless those who persecute you, <laughs> people who, who slander you, who make life hard for you, bless them, bless them and do not curse them, live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, if possible, as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. We play God when we avenge a wrong done to us. And Paul pushes this further. He not only, quoting the Old Testament, says, do not avenge because it's God's to avenge. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, yeah, you're gonna heat burning coals on his head. Do you know what burning coals in the Bible means? It means God's presence. So when we actually feed our enemy when he's hungry and give him something to drink when he's thirsty, we're heaping the presence of God upon them. We don't have to take this stuff in our own hands. We can be freed up. We don't have to right all wrongs. We can just trust God's gonna do it. God says, it's mine, I got this. I will do it, and it will be perfect justice that I will apply, and it will be done in my time. And here's the deal. When people actually live out Romans 12, do you understand that we are unleashing the greatest human power there is in our world? It's the power that actually brings healing and reconciliation to our world when we don't avenge. Now, where do we get the power to do this, to live this way? And I, I don't think that this is a three-step how-to or a technique. I, th I think we need a power. Where do we get the power? Now, here's one of the things that we have in the prophets, and I hope you're starting to see this by now, is we literally get a window into God's heart, into God's soul, and, and, and we see this tension that, that's within God, this tension between his, his holy character and his desire for justice and his tender heart of mercy wanting to show grace. I think this is the tension of the whole Bible. It's, it's how can a perfectly good God be both just and merciful? How can God, in, in, in one sense, abound in, in said in this unconditional grace and mercy, but then at the next sentence say, but I will not let the guilty go unpunished? 
I think we feel the same tension in our own lives, if we're honest. I mean, it's so tempting today to just think that all we have to do is just apply mercy and compassion to every situation, and all our problems will, will go away. That's idealism. You get older, and you, and you start to realize, as you see all the injustices of, of the world, that there's a great need for justice. There's a great need for evil to be dealt with. And here's the other problem about getting older. You, you not only see those kind of things, but you also start to see your own heart. And you, and, and you start to see that, this is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that the line that divides good and evil, it's not evil people over here and good people here. That line right, runs right through every human heart. There's evil in our own hearts. There's evil in my heart. And the older you get, you can see it. And not just it and its effects on you, but how it's pushed into others and how it affects them. We're all guilty. What's gonna win? His justice or his grace? And we see this in, in, in God's heart. It's, it, it, it's, it's almost beautiful to see. In, in one sense, looking at his people, he says, Israel, I, I, I can't give you up. But then he sends Jonah to Nineveh because I can't give even wicked Nineveh up. Now, there's a Hebrew word in this book by which this whole book hangs on. It explains the whole book. It's at the beginning of the book, it's at the end of the book. It's the Hebrew word abar. Abar is what a massive flood does. It sweeps over, it engulfs. That's what abar means. So Nahum uses this word abar to speak of Nineveh's cruelty. It's the last verse. It's almost the last word of this whole book. Nineveh's cruelty that has swept over and engulfed the whole world. And then in the beginning of the book, in 1 verse 8, you have the word abar again. And now this describes God's judgment, which is also going to be like this massive flood that's going to abar, that's going to sweep over Nineveh. A bar literally means to pass over, to pass through. Nineveh, your violence, your cruelty has passed over the whole world. It's passed through the whole world. Now my justice is going to pass over. It's gonna pass through you. Now one of the first times where a bar is used is when God's justice is about to sweep over Egypt like a flood where no one will be immune from this judgment day. And listen to what God says in Exodus 12, verse 23. I think I have that on PowerPoint. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top of the sides of the doorframe, and he will abar that doorway. Sorry. When the Lord abars through the land, passes through, but he sees the blood on the doorframe, he will Pesach. So as God's judgment sweeps through Egypt, no one's immune, but when he sees the blood on the doorpost of a house, he's not gonna just a bar, he's gonna Pesach, which means skip over. He's gonna skip over every house that has the blood of a lamb on it. And see, that judgment day only pointed to a greater judgment day, to an ultimate Passover when God's judgment, his justice would again sweep down like a massive flood. And the question is, what's gonna win? And what's gonna win? It's a lamb, it's a, it's a lamb, a slain lamb and its blood. God himself will become that lamb. Jesus hanging on the cross is both the grace of God and the justice of God. Because this is how God resolves the tension. 
the reason why the guilty can actually go unpunished is because Christ took the punishment. Think about the flood that swept over Christ, that engulfed him when it should have swept over us. And the reason it didn't, the reason it Pesach, the reason it skipped over us is because it passed through Christ. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. He bore our sin, all of it. He took our punishment, all of it. The cross is the justice of God. Our sin was paid in full at the cross. And Jesus hanging on the cross is also the grace of God. It's the mercy of God. It's a God who's saying to us, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in loving kindness, full of compassion, forgiving your sins up to a thousand generations. In Nahum 1 verse 8, when it talks about Nineveh being swept over, that does point to a final judgment. Christ is coming back. He will judge the earth. His justice will pass through every square inch of his creation, making everything right. And the reason why we don't have to be afraid today is because our judgment day took place 2,000 years ago. And that's why, for those of us who are in Christ, we can say Nahum 1 verse 7, God is so good. And those who take refuge in him. God, thank you. This is the power, God, that, that, that comes into our lives. God, when we see what you've done for us, God, how can we take vengeance on the, on the small things in our lives? God, may your Holy Spirit fill us today, opening the eyes of our hearts to see all that you've done for us in Jesus, not just what you did for us, but how you did it. And God, may that melt our hearts and change our hearts so we can be a Romans 12 people in our world, bringing healing for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.